Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today's discussion will focus on the challenges and best practices of cybersecurity in emerging markets. I'm delighted to welcome Andre Kirtland, Solutions Architect in the Innovitz Consulting Division of NetSurant. Andre is based out of the city of Johannesburg, South Africa. He has extensive experience in the tech and cybersecurity world, so I couldn't ask for a better guess to discuss this very important topic. To set the stage for the discussion, I'd like to share with you all the following quote. While developed markets may bear the brunt of cyber breaches, emerging markets are no less vulnerable. Their risks arise from weak processes and governance, the complexity of global supply chains, the need to remain low cost to attract investments, and the rapid adoption of technology without adequate cyber defenses. So great topic, very critical topic. And we have Andre to shed some light on this from his experiences. So Andre, welcome to the show. We have a lot to talk about, but let's first talk about your professional journey. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So yeah, I've uh, been around the block. This is uh, my 30th year working professionally in technology. I like so many other people, sort of accidentally drifted into it. I came of age in the era when uh, suddenly technology took over and became very prevalent and suddenly found lots and lots of organizations that had tech that they needed to use and didn't necessarily have the skills to do it. And I think I, like many others, stepped forward and said, well, let me see what I can do and uh, never looked back again. So in those 30 years, I did basically every job available in technology. So I've been a programmer, I've laid cables, I've been a project manager, I have done normal techie work. I was a Unix administrator at one point. And um, over time, I just found what I really was good at, what I enjoyed doing was um, building things and building solutions. And hence, I became a solutions architect but not the sort of solutions architect who likes to sit in the ivory tower and draw visual diagrams. I uh, very much like to get there, out there, interact with my customers and uh, understand their problems and then build solutions that solve their problems. Along the way, I spent a lot of time uh, working in various countries. I've, I've literally done projects in every continent except Antarctica, and I wow. still hope to pick that box someday. Fantastic. So, yeah, and I uh, I hope I will um, 
be able to continue to add value to people's lives. I'm so delighted, Andre, that you've been able to take time out of your busy schedule to join me in this discussion today. I know that listeners will enjoy learning about your experiences. Getting back to our topic today, uh, I think it will be beneficial if you shared with listeners what do we mean by emerging markets. Maybe talk about that first before talking about the trends. Okay. Yeah, emerging markets is a a very broad term. It's more an economic term, I think, or a political term very often. And it means different things to different people. If you were to go and look for a list of emerging markets, you're going to find lists that are going to be anything from 20 entries to 50 entries. Typically, it's all the countries that are sort of below the the top 20. So um, the countries that are up and coming or maybe not your traditional first world developed economies. So countries that are typically described as emerging markets is obviously the the big ones. So people like India, uh, South Korea, China, to an extent is already beyond being a developing market. They're largely a developed market, Turkey. um, And then where I live, South Africa, Brazil, and going all the way down to relatively small countries, the Malaysias, the, the Vietnams, etc. What they typically all have in common is they're not necessarily rich, but they're not poor. They are growing. Their GDPs are going up. What they also have that's going up in many cases is population, as opposed to many of the developed markets where um, your population growth is uh, largely stagnated. And consequently, these are the markets that in decades to come are probably going to be driving a lot of the growth and a lot of the manpower for the rest of the planet to be able to keep the worldwide economy going. Technology-wise, these are also countries that often have a lot of investment in technology. They, They often have a lot more technology than people would generally assume that they would have. They're often latecomers to many trends. So they would have put in mobile phone networks later than a European or a North American country. But that also means that they were able to use newer technology. And you'll find that technology has often got a surprising spread and prevalence in those markets. So you go through Africa, as an example, and you will find almost every person has one or two cell phones, mobile phones and have internet connectivity through that, as an example. Same thing for almost every country in Asia. Economy-wise, also, they do a wide range of things. Some of the emerging markets are uh, very resource-driven. So somebody like Saudi Arabia, South Africa, we have a lot of mining. Um, Some of them do a lot of manufacturing. If you look at your your so-called Asian tigers, as an example. So there's certainly diversity, and it's it's difficult to just pin them down and say it's one thing, but they definitely all are emerging. They're going places. They're moving up. Fantastic. And, you know, as you were sharing about what are the emerging markets and or the emerging economies, I was thinking about a recent talk that I delivered to the Indian Institute of Management, and the professor had asked me to focus on the banking and financial services sector. So when I was doing my research on the state of cybersecurity and cyber attacks in India compared to, say, the United States, the stats were, I found it to be surprisingly very similar in terms of the overall, the value of the cyber market is growing significantly. 
in fact, exponentially, so are the number of attacks, the attack incidents, the nature of the attacks. For instance, the top 10 cyber crimes in India are phishing, identity theft, denial of service attacks, malware attacks, cyber stalking, web jacking, botnets, prohibited content. And again, there's an overlap over these terms. But bottom line, it is my hunch that the cybersecurity phenomenon doesn't discriminate. You know, every country, whether they are they are part of the emerging block or the developed block, the experiences are kind of similar. What do you think? What are your reactions? Yeah, absolutely. If we think of this as being a globalized world, per definition, it means we all get the same benefits, but we also all have the same downsides. So um, your cyber threats certainly do spill over national borders. They they don't stop and, and show their passport and then decide whether they want to cross or not. If anything, a lot of the emerging markets are sometimes um, victimized even more by a lot of the cyber crime because there's not necessarily, and I think that's a big part of the topic that we'll talk about, there's not necessarily always the preparedness and the resilience inside of the industries and the organizations in those countries. Sometimes there might be a bit of a feeling of, you know, those are not our problems, they're rich people's problems. And uh, we are maybe, you know, there might be a perception that your developed markets aren't as much of a target, which makes them more of a target because it makes it appealing for the attackers. And there's even a trend sometimes of um, your attackers trying out their and, and doing proof of concept of uh, their threats inside of an emerging market before they go mainstream and try and attack a Fortune 500 in North America. Makes a lot of sense. I was wondering what's the likelihood that they will be able to extract money from a developing country. But to your point, using the emerging markets as a testbed for different types of attacks before they launch it in a developed economy, developed country like the United States, that kind of makes a lot of sense. Research finds that risks to emerging markets arise from four areas. Number one, the complexity of supply chains. Number two, the need to remain low cost to attract investments. Number three, the rapid spread of technology without adequate availability or awareness of training. And number four, weak regulations. Would you agree with these? Those those are definitely four problem areas in all of the emerging markets. Definitely trends around those. The supply chains speaks to what I was talking about a bit earlier on in this world of globalization. If we just have a look at what's happened in the last three years with disruptions of supply chains where a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal sort of shuts down the worldwide manufacturing and and retail industries, where... um, Something happening to a chip factory somewhere in Asia causes that people can't buy refrigerators in Belgium. You definitely see that interconnectedness. And again, you have that problem of a security threat arises in one place and it hits everybody. My favorite story in this always is I like to always refer back to something like the NotPetya um, incident that uh, occurred in uh, 2017, started in the Ukraine. It was a it looks like a Russian intelligence uh, operation to try and attack the Ukrainian economy with what seemed like ransomware, but it wasn't ransomware. It was basically just destroying computers. And it spread from Ukraine to their trading partners and eventually was infecting a lot of companies that were doing business in Ukraine. In fact, Russia 
uh, got quite a lot of blowback because a lot of Russian companies got infected by it. But then it got into places like Europe. One of the biggest victims was Maersk, the big Danish uh, multinational uh, shipping company. They had approximately $2 billion in losses that resulted from the NotPetya incident from trying to, to recover from this. So, Again, it speaks to what I was saying, that uh, the threats have no boundaries. Um, once they get going, they affect everybody. So um, uh, there's a lot of scope for somebody wanting to attack organizations elsewhere in the world to start their attack at what might be perceived as a weak point somewhere in the third world. In terms of um, the issue about low costs, the economies in the developing market certainly are driven very often by a low-cost model by saying, okay, we can't necessarily compete on brand name, but we're going to do it cheaper than the people in the older markets. Now, that leads to a mentality and an approach where the organizations will then say, well, let's try and cut our costs as much as possible. Let's invest in the core of our products, product development, building the factory, supporting functions like cybersecurity, like governance become deprioritized. And as an end result, again, those organizations maybe become a bit more vulnerable. Technology and skills is also a problem. I think in general, the emerging markets have got a trend that there's a lot of emphasis in those markets on building skills, educating people, getting them ready for the 21st century. But you do face the problem that often they're coming from a low base. You've got uh, uh, economies that had large-scale illiteracy, maybe a generation or two back, and now you're trying to produce cybersecurity professionals, and there's just not that many of them to go around. There's maybe not a strong culture in the, the local uh, economies of things like STEM, science, technology, engineering, medicine. And consequently, you don't have that uh, nurturing environment where your cybersecurity professionals are busy growing up. There's also a, a related problem that often investment in education is not driven by the private sector. So you're not getting companies that are putting up academies to train up people, uh, to, to turn them into IT professionals. The investment that you're getting into education is coming from governments and it's coming from outside multinationals, et cetera. And again, the emphasis of that training then doesn't go towards private sector orientated seemingly activities like let's train up cybersecurity professionals. You know, you're going to go, oh, let's train up doctors, let's train up uh, water engineers, not so much people to look after the firewalls. Okay. And then, of course, regulation. Again, a lot of these economies got to where they are by being quick and fast and let's not spend too much time sticking to the rules. Let's keep the rules light, little, less overhead for everybody. And end result, again, you don't get a strong culture of let's have strong governance, let's have strong controls in place of everything that we do, let's just make it work. And that then spreads all the way up into the government space, where you don't necessarily even get the regulation always in these countries, where you don't get things like the GDPR that you would get in Europe, as an example, going and saying, it's a law that you need to do certain things in certain ways. Okay, And again, that then weakens those organizations' ability to cope with cyber threats when they don't necessarily have the, the governance and the culture of governance inside of their organizations. So yes, absolutely agree. Very interesting. Thank you for shedding light. So Andre, you are based in South Africa. And let's say some of the listeners 
might be interested in either working there or starting a venture there as they evaluate the business scene there and evaluate the pros and cons? How should they look at cyber security as a risk factor when they are planning to start an initiative in South Africa? Uh, what would be your message to them? Um, certainly, I think you can invest with a straight face into an economy such as ours or many of the other emerging markets. And you might be concerned about the crime and the cyber crime. I to get to join to what I said a bit earlier on, you're not necessarily more exposed than what you are anywhere else on the planet. So whether you're going into South Africa or into Italy, you are going to get hit by cybercrime. I think what you have to do is just go in with open eyes and then make sure that you take the adequate steps to protect yourself, protect your organization. You do have the benefit, certainly in our economy um, in South Africa, that uh, we do have fairly good legislative support. Certainly, most of your cybercrime is a crime, and somebody's not going to be able to get away by going, oh, well, it was all on a computer. It's not a real crime. And there's certainly uh, a legal system where we do uh, enforce contracts and we uh, do prosecute people for, for cybercrime. What I would recommend in general when going into any emerging market, and I say that as somebody who's now done business in many, many different uh, countries, you do need to take a view of what is the legislative framework. You do need to understand, does the local legal system enforce things like uh, copyright and uh, intellectual property, privacy laws? Because um, it does happen sometimes that some of your emerging markets, those are not high priorities, and you could get surprised where you go in and try and do a, a set of business and suddenly discover that uh, your intellectual property has just been ripped off by your nearest competitor and there's nothing you can do about it because the legal system just doesn't prioritize that sort of crime. So that is worthwhile just taking a look at. Thanks for sharing. I think it's very important to like you said, to do the due diligence, you want to go in to an external environment with your eyes open and well-informed and not blindly. That brings up the phenomenon of outsourcing, where organizations based out of, say, the United States, they're often reaching out to the developing economies to leverage the service providers, because for the most part, it is cost-related. You know, we'll get it done cheaper. So when you're trying to establish a contractual relationship with a third-party service provider based in an emerging country, what are the things that one should be mindful of? You do need to understand legally how that organization works, and you need to understand the mindset of the people that you are going to be dealing with at the top level. So there needs to be an alignment of goals. So you could end up with a disaster if you coming in from the outside, have got a mindset of you are there to get quality at a fair price. And the person sitting opposite the table from you is saying they are going to try and charge you the most that they can, cut their costs the most that they can, and take the benefit, the difference in profit. And quality is not something they particularly care about. So there needs to be a meeting of minds in that. That does mean uh, that it sometimes makes it a little bit more difficult to do your due diligence and do your investigation. You are probably going to need to go and put your feet on the street 
to actually go into the country to see who you are dealing with and talk to them in their environment, go into the office and go and talk to the, the organization, walk the floor and see what's actually going on inside of there. Because you're going to, especially in a security context, so let's say you're setting up something like a SOC and there's people going to be sitting in this other country that are going to be looking at security events inside of your organization. They could potentially be dealing with fairly confidential uh, information. They could have access to data that uh, could have a security impact on your organization. And you really need to understand things like, how do they recruit? How do they vet the staff that they are bringing in? How do they ensure that they retain the staff that they're going to get? That's also often where it means it's a good idea to get yourself some sort of local partner who understands the local economy, the local people, and also maybe work through them. But you do that same due diligence of your partner to ensure that they have your best interests at heart. Absolutely. In fact, I want to reiterate a few things you just said. I want to remind listeners or alert the listeners that when you're trying to leverage expertise from other parts of the world and enter into any kind of a contractual relationship, it's always a good idea to have some physical presence there. Have your own representation there. As Andre just said, visit the site see who are actually working on your project, learn about the governance system, learn about the culture. Don't just buy into, let's say that they provide you with a document attesting that they have they are in compliance. Go ahead and test it out. Almost like I'm I'm asking you to be an auditor yourself. Make sure that what is being said is actually true. And while often cost is a driver, you want to go cheaper, but remember, if you don't do your diligence well, it might come back to haunt you and you'll, you'll end up spending more money doing damage control. So the initial steps of doing the exploration, forming the relationship should be deliberate. Again, I'm no lawyer and neither is my expertise in outsourcing, but I'm speaking from common sense, from some experience I've had that if you sign a contract, sign a short-term contract, with very specific clauses geared towards evaluation, assessment, and use those me measures and metrics to decide whether you want to renew the contract or not. In other words, make sure that the service provider is truly motivated in providing you the best of service in as secure a manner as possible. So you have to be proactive about it. You can't expect the service provider to do the needful. Uh, obviously, you know, to, to win the contract, a lot of organizations will say what you want to hear, but you just have to go beyond that. Kind of sounds obvious, but I know how challenging it can be when you are in a country that's thousands and thousands of miles away and you're thinking, well, the reason I'm outsourcing is because I want to make it convenient. Now, if you're telling me that I need to go there and check everything out, unfortunately, you need to to start with. But once the relationship develops, there is performance, then trust builds, and then it gets easier. But the initial kind of the bonding phase, the acquaintance phase, that is challenging. Andre, any thoughts to that? No, absolutely agreed. Uh, you essentially need to treat the process of establishing a um, service provider contract very much like an acquisition. You should treat this as if you are going to that country to buy a business, you're going to buy a bank or you're going to buy a factory and you're going to be an investor in it. And 
you will potentially, if you choose well, you will make profit out of this. And if you choose badly, it's going to go bankrupt and you're going to lose all of your money. So exactly the same mindset needs to apply. Certainly, you know, I, I think we may be sketching some of the, the dangers over here. By the same token, you could do really, really well when you're dealing with a service provider in an emerging market. Often those companies are very hungry. They are eager to please. They are eager to, to prove their ability. We can certainly look at a lot of the big Indian IT service providers, people like Tata, as an example, that have done extremely well uh, in the developed countries by providing external services and providing very top-level skills and showing a very high commitment to delivering very good levels of service. If, if you can find yourself an organization that is trying to become your trusted advisor, and they're going to become your trusted advisor by being trustworthy. And if you walk the journey with an organization, hopefully there's already somebody who's got some track record or that's got the potential if you manage it well, you could end up with gold in your pockets. Very true. And Andre, I'm glad you said what you said. I wanted to clarify something here. When we make a distinction between emerging economies and developed economies, I don't want the listeners to form the opinion that we are trying to make a distinction between best and not so great. That's not the intent here. You know, every just like any organization, a country goes through a life cycle, and every country is at a different stage in their life cycle. So it's not like developed economies are better than developing economies. I, I want to clarify that first and foremost. We are discussing the cybersecurity phenomenon across the world and how it's impacting the different areas, and every area has their contextual challenges. So I, I hope that listeners are, you know, they take it in that spirit. That brings up a very interesting question, Andre, you stated in our planning document. I love this question. You posed it this way. You said, what can organizations in the developed world learn from how organizations in the emerging markets manage cybersecurity? So I will now ask you to answer this great question. Great questions sometimes have difficult answers. <laughs> I think if you have a look at uh, the second part of what I posed over there, is I said, um, how do organizations in emerging markets manage cybersecurity? You know, let, let's answer that part of the question first. Sure. And I think some of the answer to that is organizations that are maybe more resource constrained, that maybe don't have huge investment in something like cybersecurity, don't have large parts of their personnel, large armies of people that they could draw upon to do cybersecurity, have to get creative. They have to get innovative. They have to get uh, uh, flexible and agile. So um, they have to really have a look at what is the threat that I'm trying to protect myself against. I need to prioritize those threats. So I have to say, what is the most likely Thing that is going to come and try and hurt me in the near future and could cause the most impact, and then focus on that. And if I'm then building my cybersecurity to, to be resilient against that particular threat, then um, I also can't go and afford to waste my investment, and I say waste in air quotes, by saying, oh, well, I'm going to throw a ton of money into uh, investing in some security framework or tools 
that were very important to me a decade ago, but are perhaps not that relevant anymore into what I need to protect myself against now. I need to try and stay up to date and I need to make sure that I get a lot of good ROI. I get a bang for my buck on what I'm busy spending my money on. So as an example, and and this is not just an emerging market thing, but let's say as an example, the traditional model a decade or two ago was we really need to protect the perimeter of our environment. We have to put in lots of firewalls. We have to make sure that every byte that's coming in and out of our network is a trusted byte. But once it's in, that's okay. You know, Now we can sort of trust what's on the inside. Reality has proven that wasn't necessarily always a good model because you got lots of threats that managed to get into the door. So as an example, something like phishing, where somebody sends one of my users an email the user clicks on a link inside of the email and that downloads ransomware and it's running from their computer with their user account inside of my network. Suddenly, my perimeter protection isn't doing much to keep that threat out. Okay, so that led to the rise of concepts like zero trust that said, let's not trust our users. Let's not trust our devices. Let's make sure that we can protect ourselves even if there's a compromise on our internal network. So, as I said, this is not an emerging markets uh, concept itself, but an agile organization makes that change. An agile organization says, yes, I used to invest lots and lots and lots of money into firewalls and everything related to that, but now I need to invest it into something different. And now I need to start investing into something different again. Now I need to start saying, how do I detect threats that leave no footprints? How do I detect malware that um, is using AI machine learning concepts and methodologies to do transactions inside of my environment on my systems, not executing little pieces of malware that go and try and find a vulnerability in a piece of software somewhere. So again, what are the tools and the methodologies that I've got to put in place to try and protect myself against that? Agile organization is a learning organization, is looking all the time and saying, how's my threat evolving? How do I spend my money? How do I prioritize my actions in order to protect myself better? And I think that is where sometimes looking over the fence at the getting to the first part of the question, some of the organizations that I deal with in the developed world sometimes have a very static approach. They've got a strategy where it's sort of, this is how my grandmother made the apple pie. So this is how I'm going to make the apple pie. Okay, they stuck into old models based on old threats. They're not necessarily being as flexible. They're also taking the approach uh, or, or making the assumption. There's lots of people out there who can do the work from a cybersecurity point of view. So if I need skill, I'm just going to be able to walk out the door and I can go hire them. again. Your emerging markets people, as I said a bit earlier on, have had to face skill shortages for decades. And they learned a long time ago, the best way to get your skills is to build your skills. Get the people in the door, put in place training programs, put in place internships, put in learnerships, put in partnerships between organizations, but then take people, grow them up and turn them into the cyber professionals that you're going to be needing a decade from now. Again, a lot of your developing world uh, organizations are not necessarily making that investment. And now they're sitting in the year 2023 
saying, where am I going to find all of those cybersecurity professionals I need in order to be able to help me stay secure? And again, possible lesson that they could be taking from some of those emerging market organizations. Absolutely. Very, very, very true, spot on. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking that we call ourselves these days a global economy, a digitized world, and which is a reality. Like like we talked about the supply chain challenge, uh, you know, the scarcity of computer chips, the, the transportation bottlenecks, thanks to the pandemic, the labor shortages, and there are no cars in the U.S. The other day I went car shopping and it's hard to find brand new cars they are trying to recycle the older cars. That's kind of where things are. I've never experienced that in my 30 years in the United States. And But at least I have a lot to talk about in the classroom about the realities of supply chain bottlenecks because we are feeling it as a consumer, whether it's going to the grocery store and not finding a particular item that's not on the shelves or because of scarcity, the prices have gone up. So reality has hit home in many ways. The other thing that I thought of as you were sharing your perspectives is the fact that your approach to cybersecurity, and I'm a huge fan of a holistic approach, should not change whether you are in the developed economy or you're in a developing economy because the challenges are the same. For instance, the defense in-depth approach, the zero-trust framework, these are great approaches. Now, can you implement them well? Can you implement them well consistently over a period of time? That's where the difference lies. There's not there's no problem with these challenge with these success factors or best practices. I think they are all valid. It is can you make it happen? And talking about success factors and best practices. I published a book uh, in 2021 through Sage Publishing. It's titled Cybersecurity Readiness a holistic and high-performance approach. In that book, I describe the holistic governance framework. I call it the commitment, preparedness, and discipline framework. I kept the labels pretty generic so so everybody can relate to. So when you're trying to manage cybersecurity in a holistic manner, you need to have that commitment, which is, if you think about commitment, we're talking about top management being hands-on. We are talking about the organization recognizing that let's truly empower the CISO and the CISO function whereby they can report either directly to the CEO or to the board of directors so they can be as objective and unbiased as possible. Let's try to create what I like to call a we-are-in-it-together culture where every organizational member, including supply chain partners, recognize they all have a role to play if they truly want to secure the strategic assets. And the list goes on. When we come to the preparedness dimension, that's where the technical controls that have been popularized through frameworks such as NIST come into play. There are probably 100 plus controls that can be put in place to secure the data, to secure the network, to secure the storage devices, and more. So there's a lot out there that organizations can do. And finally, the discipline, which is what I was getting at. One is to have the plan. One is to have a framework. The other is to practice it well and keep at it. Unfortunately, the cybersecurity challenge is not going to go away. 
It's like brushing your teeth, if I may. I don't want to trivialize the challenge, but it is something as fundamental as that. You can't stop brushing your teeth. You can't stop maintaining the cyber hygiene. You have to find a way of getting it etched in the culture, in the mindset, so it becomes muscle memory and people doing it do it without even thinking about it. We have to get to a point where reminders are important through training and workshops, but there is a certain level of awareness. So that's kind of my maybe more than two cents here way of putting my arms around cybersecurity governance and reiterating what you said, Andre, that the solution is no different. It's how well we implement them. That's the challenge. And that's where I, I love the way you put it. There can be a sense of complacency in the developed part of the world where they feel they have figured it out. They know it. This worked for them. So there's nothing to learn from the developing economies. But that's precisely where you shouldn't allow that mindset to set in. You must be open to other ideas. And in countries where they are faced with a more challenging scenario, they're probably more alert and more hungry and more motivated in putting in place the best possible practices. And so the sharing of knowledge, the sharing of experiences can be hugely beneficial. Andre, it's your turn. I spoke too much, I think. <laughs> now, you, you shared a lot of value. Look, I, I've reviewed your um, yeah. commitment, preparedness, discipline model before, and uh -huh. um, it speaks a lot of truth. It is essentially the basic good practices of how you should tackle security everywhere, anywhere, at all times. You know, it comes down to one other very related model. I always say every solution is not just put in place good tech. It's always technology, people, and process. So put in the good tools, but also make sure that the people know how to work with it, know that the people know what they have to do, when they have to do it, how they have to do it, and then have the processes that define the policies and the governance and the flow of what we have to do, the task assignments for everybody in that environment. And only if you have all of those covered, are you actually going to have a good, secure solution? So some of the things that I certainly, you know, just picking out of your model, the commitment area, I think is very, very important. And again, you're speaking specifically again towards organizations in the emerging markets that perhaps sometimes don't have such a strong culture and history of commitment to governance and supporting functions like cybersecurity, as I said a bit earlier on. So it is important that top management needs to come in and show a commitment to making the environment more secure and better governed, that they provide sponsorship, that they provide air cover to the IT management and the other people that technically are actually trying to make things better, but that they know that they've got the support of the business management that's saying, please do this for us, help make us more secure. And um, what drives this to a large extent, uh, again, in emerging markets, is globalized world as the organizations emerging markets are trying to do business with older organizations and older economies, they hit the standards and the legislation. So suddenly you've got an organization that you're trying to do business with, you're manufacturing network cards in Vietnam, and you're trying to sell it to a company in Europe, and they're saying to you, what's your position on GDPR? 
Um, are you ISO 27001 compliant? Do you comply with NIST, et cetera, et cetera? And those organizations from the developing countries are going, oh, we'd better get these things mastered. We'd better make sure that we have that stamp of approval. And if they're good, they're not just ticking that box, but they're actually going, okay, let's embrace that. Let's make ourselves better so that we can sell better. So that helps to get that commitment. And But then once you've got that commitment, then you've got to build the processes, the policies and everything else to make it real. Then you've got to make sure that you put in place those solutions, but along the way, you build the people. You've got to do the education. You've got to make sure that the people know how to do it. You've got to get skills transfer in place. Something else, again, benefiting from globalization and specifically a cybersecurity context, threat intelligence. There's great threat intelligence feeds that are put together multinationally, sometimes by commercial organizations, sometimes open source, but where people are doing the research and they're saying, we are seeing these threats. This is what we're seeing is happening in real life as opposed to a theoretical threat. So look out for this. Here's the indicators of compromise you need to be looking at. Here's the risks that you need to keep your eyes open for. So tap into those. So you might be sitting in Argentina or Uzbekistan, but it doesn't mean that you can't know what is the latest research on cybersecurity that's being done in Israel or Massachusetts. Okay, so make use of that. And collaborate and partner. So as an organization in a developing economy, no reason that you can't set up partnerships with organizations in North America, in Europe, in other more developed economies, maybe by being a service provider to them. But again, use that as an opportunity to exchange knowledge and exchange training and exchange insights. And then do the basics. A a lot of your model, if I look at the things you're recommending there, you're basically just saying, do the basics and do them well. Once you've got the basics in place, do the more advanced stuff. So do a a model to build your maturity over time. So, and, and this is a very important approach when trying to optimize your security, is to say, we can't necessarily transform ourselves overnight. You're very seldom going to have a fairy godmother that comes in, waves her wand, and you suddenly turn from being a very basic, immature organization into a very mature organization with all the practices and all the tools and all the knowledge and everything. But what you can do is you can say, what will we do this year? And then build yourself up in the next 12 months. And when you're finished with these 12 months, you go to the next 12 months and then the next 12 months. And in that way, build yourself up progressively over a period of perhaps multiple years from being very immature to being very mature, from being incapable to being very capable. And along the way, just make sure that you're taking care of all of the important aspects and not leaving important gaps in your security armor, which is where, again, something like uh, Dave's commitment, preparedness, discipline framework has a lot of that guidance inside of it to say, yes, things you need to remember, tick all of these boxes. Well, thank you, Andre. That was terrific. And, you know, you're just flowing. So you've been there. You've done that. I think your recommendations and suggestions are well-made. I hope listeners find value in them. Just to add a couple of things or maybe remind the audience about a couple of things. You know, cybersecurity can be looked at very technically. And there is no denying that you need that technical expertise to have those kinds of tools in place, 
whether you're trying to thwart threats or monitor threats. The technical piece is hugely important, no doubting that. But as Andre said, technology is one piece of the puzzle. There's the people and there's the process piece. And you have to figure out a way where you are able to find that right balance. And as you know, finding the right balance doesn't mean that the balance will will always be there. You have to constantly shift left, shift right, you know, do things to maintain the balance, constantly keep tweaking the people, process, and technology variables. And that's how you stay proactive. That's how you stay a little paranoid, which is not necessarily a bad thing when you're dealing with a phenomenon like like, like cyber, but it's an ongoing uh, effort. It's not something that you just outsource and take the approach, okay, I don't want to deal with it. Somebody else will deal with it. It is perfectly okay to leverage expertise, but you really can't disown the challenge. You have to still own it, still have to provide oversight. It's like sending your kids to school. The school may be a great school. They might be getting a great education, but that doesn't mean that as parents, you don't have to provide oversight. You still have to provide oversight. So that's kind of the way you look at managing cyber threats, managing cyber risks. It's a global phenomenon. It affects all countries. As I'm learning as well from somebody like Andre, who's more traveled than I am, who's uh, even more experienced than I am. And I think he mentioned, he's provided several takeaways in his write-up. I wish I could share all of them with you. We're running out of time. But one of the things that he emphasized, he says, you can learn so much by creating a global team, maybe not literally, but just being open to ideas, lots of resources out there, reach out, like he talked about open source resources that are gathering intelligence, feeding it, uh, making it available to everybody, because it's a global problem. Unless you are able to team up, you're going to have a very difficult fight on hands against this extremely sophisticated cybercrime network. They are highly sophisticated. Uh, I was reading about how they have this six-figure salary jobs. They are extremely organized. It's a global industry in itself, which is focused on creating havoc. And you're fighting against it as an organization with the handicap that that's not why you've been formed. You've been formed for different missions, whether it's making cars or making tires or making sports goods. Well, Andre, uh, this has been great. Uh, Really enjoyed the conversation. I'd always like to give my guests the final word. So now is your time for some final thoughts. Sure. So, yes, definitely take security seriously. That's my main message to everybody. That's what I probably say once a day to someone somewhere. It's a dangerous world out there. Cybercrime is on the rise. The bad guys really are out to get you. And uh, we're all facing the same threats everywhere. Okay. And in terms of protecting yourself, knowledge is key. Understand what that threat is and then build your solutions to that. Let's all work together across all countries, all markets, all segments. You know, it's sometimes we think we're in competition with each other, different vendors, different economies. But yeah, we're all in the same war. So uh, let's collaborate and let's beat the bad guys eventually. Thank you, Andre. So true. Let's all work together to make the world a better place. So with that, we conclude our episode today. And thanks again, Andre, for your time. Thank you. A special thanks to Andre Kirtland 
for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.